0: Our text this morning is 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Hear now the very word of God that is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative for our lives. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we pray that you would meet with us even now over your Word, that you would help us to understand it, be affected by it. And have our lives changed that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever sat and wondered a bit about the state of the world, perhaps, or the state of the church? You've wondered why things are the way they are, perhaps especially now in an election season when you hear constant radio and television ads about how we're not where we're supposed to be and things should be in a certain spot. Maybe this has affected you and you've scratched your head and wondered, why are things so off kilter, messed up, not perfect? You know, it's easy to see with things like politics and in the world, because the world is consumed by what I I call, in a very sophisticated means of naming it, Star Trek theology. What is Star Trek theology, you say? What it is, it's a theology or a means of living that is based upon the fact that everything is just supposed to get better all the time. And there is some mythical point in the future in which all our problems will be solved. There'll be no more hunger. There'll be no more conflict. No more disease. Everything will be perfect, and then we can go out and explore and do wonderful things. The problem is is that sometimes we bring Star Trek theology into the church. We expect the church to be perfect. That there should be this just mythical time that should be just around the corner in which there'll never be any conflict in the church. Never be any sin. No difficulties with finances. You'll have to beat people off who want to join with a stick. But you see, the church isn't like that. Was it like that in Peter's day? And 2,000 years later, the church... I have to confess to you, is still not perfect. But the Lord is always superintending over His church. The Lord has a purpose for His church. And Peter, at the end here of his letter, as we move toward our final sections here, is describing for us what the Lord would have us do at these crucial times and crucial moments. We're going to look at what we are to do at the end of the world. And Peter tells us three things about what we are to do. He first tells us how we are to think. Then he tells us how we are to act. And then finally he tells us how we are to prioritize in light of the end of the world. How to think, how to act, and how to prioritize things. Well, let's look then first at how we are to think. Peter begins this section in verse 7 by saying, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The first thing that Peter tells us in how we are to think is he says we must have a focused mind. We must have a mind that is focused because after all, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. We are to be focused upon the approaching end, focused upon what is happening at the end of the world. Now, when we read a passage like this, if we're honest with ourselves, we're tempted to side with those who mocked Peter in 2 Peter that he talks about. We scratch our heads and we say, Peter, End of all things is at hand. Uh, It's been about 2,000 years and the end hasn't come. I'm not really sure what you were thinking. Maybe you were mistaken, but really, we haven't seen the end yet. We're still going on. And if we fall into that trap, we miss the immediacy and the importance of of what has been brought about by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you see, when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he is speaking to us in global terms. The end of everything that God has purposed is at hand. It is near. Your salvation is nearer than you think, Paul would say. It is nearer than when we first believed. You see, what Peter is talking here is about God's purpose, not about a calendar or a stopwatch. The end of all things is at hand. God's purpose is ripe. Right. These are the last days. We are living in the days of greatest providence and blessing. We have a full scriptures. David didn't. Peter didn't. We have a church that has been founded upon the prophets and the apostles. We've seen God's providence in building up His church. The gospel has gone forward and turned the world upside down, Luke tells us in Acts. This is what is happening. We are to be focused on the approaching end, but to do so, we must be focused upon Jesus Christ and His return. For after all, what did our Lord say on the cross? But it is finished. He didn't say, wait around and maybe we'll get it together in a few hundred years or a millennium or two. He says, it is finished. And if you think about it, all that we have to look forward to is the return of our Lord. We can focus our minds upon that. We're not waiting on more revelation. We're not waiting on the fullness of God's redemption. We're not waiting on the fullness of the manifestation of his covenant. We are only waiting upon the gathering in of all of God's people and the return of our Lord. Focused on the approaching end. Focused on Jesus Christ. But you see, when we put the end of the world in these terms, Peter tells us also that we need to be focused on real life. You see, when people think of the end of the world and things that are important, they think about things that are far off and don't affect them. Volcanoes, wars, natural disasters. Things that are far off into the future and don't affect them. And we have a temptation, brothers and sisters, to wake up in the morning, to rub the sleep out of our eyes and to say, well, it's not really that important of a day. It's Wednesday. I have any phone calls today. Do I have a meeting? I better check my calendar. Well, Friday should be a good day. And we just simply ignore the immediacy of what the Lord has given to us in today. Because you see, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. It's already occurred. It's already here. When you wake up this morning, you wake up with the knowledge that today is a significant day. Today is a day to do things for the Lord. Today is a day to trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Today is a day to make an eternal difference. You don't need to wait for tomorrow. You don't need to wait for April. You don't need to wait for October. Today is a day that the Lord has given to us. We we are focused. Our mind is focused. But more than that, our mind is also called to be ready. We're called to have a ready mind. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, it's our old friend, isn't it? We see our therefore and we look back to see what it's there for. Because the end of all things is here, we are to do certain things. We are to be self-controlled, sober-minded, and to do this for the sake of our prayers. Our mind is not only to be focused upon the things that the Lord brings to us, but it is to be ready. We are to be expectant. Do you expect today for the Lord to do marvelous redemptive acts? Are you? Some call it revival. Some call it reformation. Some call it the growth of the church. Some call it standing upon the word of God. Are you ready to see the Lord do wondrous deeds that the psalmist speaks of? Are you ready to see him convert the unconverted? Are you ready to see him blossom your marriage? Are you ready to see him carry your children through to adulthood? to founding their own families upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready to see God do that? Or are you waiting for something that might come about in the future? The end of all things is at hand. Be ready. God is doing great things. Perhaps part of the reason we're not expectant is because as much as we say, come Lord Jesus, we want to leave quickly off of it. Because, you know, Lord, I really like making things up so that people think I'm better than I am. I'm not ready to clean that part of my life up yet. Lord, I'm really not ready to tell the truth all the time. I'm really not ready to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm really not ready to submit to my husband. I'm really not ready to obey my parents. Give me just a little bit longer. To hold this sin close to my breast. Are you tempted by that? I am. The devil constantly whispers to us. Don't be so eager for Jesus to come Isn't this sin sweet? And you must claim the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And be expectant for his return. Longing to see him. So that not only you might see him. But that we might be conformed to his image. And that our sin might be gone. And when we have this kind of thought, we are serious. We are self-controlled, Peter says. We are in our right mind. The word here when Peter says self-control doesn't just mean that when someone offers you that second piece of chocolate cake, you go, no, I've got good willpower. One's a good for me. No, this word is a very interesting word. The other prominent time that it's used is in the Gospels. There's a man, and he's an interesting man. He likes to hang out in a graveyard, and he likes to attack passersby because you see he's mad. He's possessed by a demon. And our Lord casts the demon out of him, and the people come by and they see him, and they can't even recognize him because he's clothed quiet, and in his right mind. He's self-controlled. Same word. You see, Peter calls you to run from the madness of sin and to be self-controlled, to be in your right mind, to have the proper perspective, because the end of all things is at hand. To turn from the madness of sin. See, Paul describes this same sort of set of mind as not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought in Romans 12. That's to be self-controlled, to have a proper perspective, to be in your right mind, not to be skewed. You see, we do that, don't we? We play the ethical game that children sometimes play with their thumb. My thumb's bigger than the sun. We think more of ourselves than we ought. But see, Peter calls us not to do that, but to be self-controlled. And there's another aspect of this. That is that we are to be focused upon others. If we're not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, to be self-controlled is to think more highly of others, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Peter also says we are to be sober-minded. We're to be watchful. We are not called to be sleepy Christians. You know, when you've stayed up too late, and you get up, and you go out to some sort of meeting, it could be at work, it could be in a neighborhood community center, and coffee hasn't kicked in, and you start doing this. Trying to shake yourself awake? That's not what the Christian life is like. We're called to be alert, to be awake. We're called, as we looked at last week, to be hoplites, to be soldiers of the cross, to be ready. You don't want soldiers to be asleep when the enemy attacks. You want them not only to be awake, but to be alert. This is a theme that Peter strikes over and over again. Peter uses, in his two letters, HALF of all of the uses in the Bible of this word. In 1 Peter alone, it occurs in chapter 1, here in chapter 4, and again in chapter 5. He commands us to be sober-minded, alert, awake. This is how we are to think. But you know Peter, he won't ever leave us just to have Christianity up here, will he? Faith must be lived out. And so he also then tells us how we are to act. And the first thing that he says is we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Now why would he do this? If we're talking about the end of all things, if we're again, if we're honest, this sort of falls flat a bit. It's a little bit pedestrian, mundane. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore you must must pray. And we think What? Not run to the hills? Not try and have an evangelistic rally? What? Not try and do this or do that? What can we do for the Lord? Peter begins, he says, pray. In light of the time and the situation, you must pray. Why does he say that? I think we can see that prayer is an excellent barometer of the Christian life. Isn't it? You see, very often it's the little things that are most difficult to persist in. When you watch one of these action films and the hero's about to defuse a bomb and he's got a minute and he clips the wire always at either one or two seconds, he's not distracted. Even if he's got to do 15 things. And that can be us at moments of crises. But you see, in the ordinary life of every day, when the end of all things is here, today, with right now being important, we can say, you know, well, I don't really have time to sit down and pray. How important could that be? But you see, Peter says it's incredibly important. Do you remember what he said to husbands? He said, your prayer life is indicative of your relationship with your wife, and God. If that relationship is bad, what will happen to your prayer life? It will be hindered. And so our prayer lives are a barometer or an indication of our relationship with God. It requires our effort and our focus. We must focus upon prayer. We must put all other things out of our mind. You see, the truth is, when we say, what did we do for the Lord today? We often want to think of very important and incredible things. It's like a play troupe. You know, there are many members of a play troupe. Someone has to stay up all night and put hammers into two-by-fours to build sets. Someone else has to give the final dramatic speech of the play. The problem, the temptation, for most of us, is that we'd rather give the dramatic speech than build the set. Because we inherently think that's more important. But you see, God says you must lay these foundations by prayer. You must be laboring day upon day. You must be doing the small things in order to see the glory of God. If we're honest with ourselves, we want to be more visible. But the Lord calls us to labor for Him, not ourselves. No one's immune for this. As a matter of fact, as a pastor, I'm probably most tempted by this. Because you see, I don't get any points with anyone by praying for them and not telling you about it. But I get up and I prepare a sermon or I teach a Sunday school or we meet a budget, or we do this. Everybody knows about that. And so the temptation for us in our church and in our homes is to just focus upon the things that seem flashy. But Peter starts with prayer. That's where he wants us to begin. But we're also to act not only by praying, not only praying in our acting, but we are to act by loving, Peter says. Look at what he says in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is saying, in a sense here, that love is the most important aspect of life in the church. We might think of it this way. If prayer is the fuel that makes the church go, love is the glue that keeps the church together you notice what Peter says here? He doesn't say you won't have conflict. He doesn't say as you learn more and more and as you study the scriptures, you won't sin. You won't have interpersonal conflict. He says you must love to cover that multitude of sins. This requires persistence. Have you ever had that experience? You try and be patient with someone and they disappoint you. And then you're patient with them. They disappoint you again. And then you start saying to yourself, okay, fool me once, shame on me. I'm a Christian, so fool me twice, shame on me. Now, fool me three times, it's on you. You ever had that temptation? Peter knows that. That's why he says you've got to be persistent in love. You've got to keep loving. You've got to keep on keeping on. You've got to do it every day. Because the end of all things is at hand. You must be marked by love. Why is it that love is something that we lose patience in? Some of you, I know, hunt. And I'm sure there have been days where you go out and you hunt, and what you catch is a cold. You sit out there and if you're hunting deer, you don't even see one. Maybe it's a little bit rainy and miserable, right? And I'm sure those of you that are avid hunters that have had that happen to you say, well, you know what? This is stupid. I'm never hunting again. I didn't get anything this time out. I'm done forever, right? Now, there are wives just going like this. Yes, please, please. No. no, you don't do that, do you? You go back out. You persist. You keep on. Some of you... May be fans of a sports team, like the Boston Red Sox before this past decade, or the Cleveland Indians, or the Chicago White Sox, or the Cleveland Browns, these teams that go decade after decade after decade without winning a championship. And what are their fans known for? Before the Red Sox won, right? All of the Red Sox fans in Boston said, forget this, we're going to be Yankees fans so we can celebrate. No, they persist. They keep on. That kind of persistence is what we're called to in love. We don't give up on it. Even though maybe in our heart of hearts, just like Cubs fans, we figure it's still not going to work out this year, we still persist with it because that's the right thing to do. It's what God has called us to this kind of love can't be pro forma. It can't be just a show. Notice what kind of love we are to keep on showing. We're to love one another earnestly, eagerly, fervently. You want a picture of what earnestly looks like? That is how Jesus Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same exact word. He prayed such that he was sweating as if it were drops of blood. That's fervent, earnest prayer. That's the way we are called to love. Eagerly, fervently. And this kind of love keeps us on course. It's This kind of love is like if you were, here's a new word for you, spelunking. Going out in a cave. And if you're not a professional, what you do is you have these ropes that go throughout the cave. Someone goes in ahead of you and lays a rope. And what do you do? You hold on to that rope for dear life. You don't want to get lost in a cave. You know someone's been there before you. Someone that knows where the end is. Someone that knows where the goal is. That's what love is like for the Christian in the church. It's a lifeline. To God. This kind of love is also a forgiving love. He says, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. This is almost a proverbial saying. It's because it's almost the exact same thing that James says. Love covers a multitude of sins. You see, Peter knows there's going to be sins and trials. As a matter of fact, Peter knows there's going to be whoppers he doesn't say love covers a couple of sins. Love covers some sins. He says love covers a multitude. This is the word that describes a gigantic crowd. Like one that fills an arena. This is a multitude of sins. That's what love covers. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just cover some of our sins. If you come here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you may be thinking that this Jesus can't handle your sins. They're too big, they're too deep, they're too ingrained in the past. But you see, the love of Jesus covers a multitude of number and types and kinds of sins. That kind of love is your lifeline at the end of all things. And Peter calls you to repent and to seek out that love. We're called to pray as we act. We're called to love as we act. And Peter says the other thing we're called to do, how we act is by serving. By serving. Look at verse 9. This is a one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because, again, this verse 7 begins this passage. And Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. You need to be sober. You need to be vigilant. You need to be awake. You need to be clear-headed. What you need to do is invite somebody over for lunch. Have somebody out for coffee. Have someone in your home. Peter, what? Show hospitality end of all things, I'm called to this great love, I'm called to be a prayer warrior, and you want me to fix cold cuts? Yes. We are called to show hospitality. In hospitality, we serve, and it shows that a humble serving and a critical serving. Hospitality is so important, it is one of The required qualifications for being an elder. You may not be an elder if you are not hospitable. You can be apt to teach. You can not be a lover of money. You can be restrained. You can have a a fine mind. If you are not hospitable, you are not fit to the office of elder. Wow. Paul says it not once. He says it twice. Why? Because this is a practical example of love. Ladies, it doesn't matter if there are dishes in the sink. You can have someone over for lunch. Really. Guys, it doesn't matter if the lawn gets a little longer. If someone needs your time, you can take them to Starbucks. You'll live. See, Hospitality is not about setting up the perfect table with the best of China. Although it could be. The core of hospitality is giving of yourself, serving others for the Lord. And you see, this is the way that we build relationships. And that's what God wants from us. Now, you notice what else Peter says here? We are called to show hospitality to one another, what? Without grumbling. You wonder why he put without grumbling in there? I think it's because we are tempted to serve others, to show hospitality when we're doing it for ourselves. We want, in our sinful nature, as we need to mortify our sin, we want to have people come over and tell us that we're the best barbecuer in town. Or that we make the best casserole on the block or that we are so giving and outgoing because that's the wedge that Satan uses to get in. And what Peter says is, don't let Satan use that wedge. Do it without grumbling, even if no one notices. As a matter of fact, even if someone comes in and complains about the lunch that you've put on the table, do it without grumbling. Do it as to the Lord. We're called to show this hospitality. We're also called to use our gifts. Notice what Peter says here. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. This is a basic biblical truth that we need, raise my hand, hammered into our heads. Our gifts are not for us. They're for others. God did not give you your gift, whether it is teaching or preaching or music or hospitality or administration for your own benefit. He gave it to you to serve his church. It's his gift. That's why we call it a gift. He gives it to us that we might serve the church. So when we teach, we are not called to have the gift of teaching so that we can know lots of things. We're called to teach to build others up. When we have the gift of administration, it is not so that life is made easier for us, that things run smoothly. It is so that the Lord Jesus Christ's church goes forward. Our gifts are for others. And Peter says, We are to serve with the strength that God supplies. What that means, beloved, is you can't hold back on your gifts. You can't hold back on your skills. As much strength as God gives you, you must use. Even if you're afraid, you'll get hurt. You see, there's no provision in here for God gives you these skills. He gives you this strength. You can hold back if you think maybe someone will say mean things about you. You're too involved in the church. You're doing too many things. You... I don't know why this person needs to be everywhere. Why? No, we are called to serve with the strength that the Lord gives to us. Now, there's a real neat blessing in this. Look around you, to your sides, in front of you, behind you. What I've just described what you're supposed to do, everyone around you is supposed to do for guess who? You. You see, you're not here by yourself. You're called to serve others. Others are called to serve you. The neatness of this command is there's one of you. There's a multitude of others. Do you see how the Lord provides for you? How could you possibly be shortchanged? God asks you to serve with your gift and he gives you hundreds of other gifts for your sake. What a magnificent God we serve that he provides for. Well, we've seen how we're supposed to think, but then we've seen how we are supposed to act. And finally, briefly, God shows us how we are supposed to prioritize. How we prioritize. And this is simple. We put first things first, and we put second things second. Right? The old family special says you put one foot in front of the other. That's what we do. And the first things first is that we desire to see God's purpose fulfilled. You see, how God ministers is by using our gifts in the midst of his people. This is how God manifests his glory in the church through people. We are called to live in the church, to think in the church, to act in the church so that God's glory is seen. So that our gifts are exercised, so that we have hospitality, so that we show love, so that we are prayer warriors, so people don't say, what a wonderful person you are, but so that they say, what a great God you serve. Only God could make you love like that. Isn't that true? In that command that we are called to love others? That kind of love is supernatural. Love that forgives a multitude of sins. Love that puts others first. Love that acts. Only God shows that kind of love. Only He can create it in us. God's purpose is fulfilled by our actions. And then Jesus Christ is seen, Peter says, as all in all. To Him belong glory and dominion. Evidence of our reconciliation with God is seen in our human relationships. Jesus is seen as the one who changes the world by the fact of how we are reconciled with one another. Do you long to have your neighbors see a bigger Jesus? Then you must think as Peter asked you to think. And you must act as Peter asked you to act. Do you long to see Jesus lifted up in our nation, then you must think and act as God commands you to. That Jesus might be seen as all in all. That's first in the life of the church. But second, the second thing is we have an eternal mindset. This glory and dominion for Jesus Christ is how long? It's forever and ever We're called to show the eternity of God and His power and His glory in our everyday acts, in our morning prayer, in bringing someone a cup of coffee, in listening, in forgiving, in being alert, in studying the Scriptures. God's eternal glory is seen, and we have an eternal mindset. The dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ is set before us. And when we see that, we see our proper place, and we see God's place. When you think about how tall in order that is, and how glorious that is, you can't help but say with Peter, the end of all things must be at hand. No waiting around now. That is our challenge today, Christian. Put off whatever waiting you have. Are you waiting for the building to be built before you embark on some ministry or give yourself wholeheartedly? Repent of that now and seize the day. Are you waiting for your kids to be more grown so that you have a little bit of a less frazzled frame of mind? Repent of that and seize today. Are you waiting for the kids to go off to college? Are you waiting to get married? Are you waiting to start your own family? To grow up and then you'll do things for the Lord. You must repent of that and seize the day. The end of all things is at hand. And God's glory will be seen in His church. Join the chorus of megaphones. Singing out the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in our thoughts, in our acts, in our service. For God's glory and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the God of all gods. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would help us to think as you would have us think, to act as you would have us act. That you might be all in all, Lord Jesus, We ask this in confidence, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.